Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. This was interesting. Um, Rachel Campos Duffy, you know, who's uh, Fox News personality now, uh, married to former Wisconsin Congressman Sean Duffy. Don't they have like 20 children or something? Uh, Something like that. Yeah, they've got a lot. Uh, And uh, she um, went to this migrant shelter that's set up in Tucson, Arizona, and it's operated by one of these NGOs, sort of like Bill Malusian at the border in San Diego, trying to get a handle on the NGO the non-governmental organization funded by the government in most cases that is aiding and abetting the importation of people from all over the world with Malusian at the San Diego in the San Diego sector. It was with respect to busing with Rachel Campos Duffy. It's uh, with respect to this migrant shelter that's set up in Tucson. And it's sort of the same conversation we've had about the migrant shelter set up in Chicago is, you know, why is there no outside access allowed? I mean, it's taxpayer financed Wait. directly or indirectly. So what is there to hide if people are being um, properly provided for? If um, what you're saying money is being spent on is what money is being spent on. If you're saying how many people, if you're telling us that uh, the the number of people uh, that are in these shelters is reflected in what we'll see in the shelters, then then what's the problem Well, um, that was sort of Rachel Campos Duffy's perspective when she tried to, uh, well, she did enter the, uh, you know, the, 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 she got in the, the front, you know, got to the front desk of this, uh, this migrant shelter, but, um, couldn't get much cooperation beyond that. And this is a migrant shelter that's operated by an NGO called Casa Elitis. What you're seeing is basically an unmarked building. All signage is removed. That's the first sign you know that this is an NGO, a non-governmental organization, in this case, Casa Alitas, who is housing illegal immigrants. Let's go inside to see what happens. Um, trying to rent a room? Oh, no, we don't rent rooms. Why, is this a hotel? We don't, can you guys get off the property, please? Is this not a hotel? Can you please exit the property? It's private property. Whose private property? There's no there's no name outside? Can you please have them exit the building? What's the problem? But is this where illegals are being housed with government funding? Can you please get off our property? All of you, please, or I'm gonna call the police. Please call them. Okay. Yeah, hi, what is this? Um, you need to leave, please. But I need to know what it is. Oh, Casa Alitas. This is Casa, this is an NGO paid for by government money. We're not gonna answer any of your questions. Just, can you explain what you do here? No. 
Why, why so much secrecy? You know, that's what the American people want to understand what's happening here. Why? So I'll just wait with you here until you leave, but we won't be answering any questions. Podemos hablar? Tú puedes hablar con nosotros si quieres. Yeah. No, no, sorry, guys. Talk? You guys cannot come into is, our shelter. Oh my God, now the supervisor. Seeing directions to a hotel, the aeropuerto. So, um, your tax dollars at work, Dan. Right. Well, gee, why wouldn't uh, that inspire confidence in terms of how the federal government is handling the situation at the border or the entrance of millions? Uh, do we really know millions of people from all over the world? Uh, th th I mean, it's just a simple question, but that uh, Campo stuff, he asked you, why all the secrecy? What, what, what is there to hide exactly? Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in DA then a quick comment. In Chicago, the aldermen have to give a forty eight hour notice. For the the aldermen. And someone like you or me, we couldn't even even if we wanted to put in to have a visit and see where our tax dollars are going, that request would be denied. So yeah, what are they hiding? And our friend that um I'm so so sorry, I forgot his name. That is housing 400 people on his own, putting them in his empty buildings on the south side. He got some video from inside that shelter in Little Village where that five-year-old died. And there's water dripping from the ceiling. There's rat droppings. There's roaches. There's people on top of people. It's just all beds when you walk in there. So yeah, I don't I've know. seen so, I've seen some footage from inside some of these facilities. The one on Halstead. Um, the one in Elston, um, and I mean it. It don't doesn't look like inhumane conditions to me. There are it's it's a, just a big open room with a bunch of beds and a bunch of people milling about. A lot of kids, uh, but I guess so. So the question is so. So then what what is the again? Why the secrecy? What is there to hide? We know that these are sanctuary jurisdictions. We know that that's a migrant shelter. We have some idea about the number of migrants, capacity issues, the agreements between the city and the property owner. I mean, nobody from the videos I've seen, nobody is being beaten. Kids are playing and so on and so forth. People are sitting around eating. So what, what is it you don't want us to see? Why, why the secrecy? Is it just that's just the reflexive action of the government that, you know, um, for the people in spite of the people, to borrow from our friend Nicholas Cass, that that's just their attitude. It's like, don't, this is our province, not yours. You have no right here. We don't have to answer any questions. We will dictate to you. We will tell you on our terms. We will do things our way. We will uh, provide whatever explanation we desire to provide whenever we de decide to provide it, and you will accept it. And that's just their imperious attitude. Or is there something actually more problematic going on that would necessitate all of this hush-hush. I, 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 I honestly, it's a little bit confusing to me that why all the secrecy? I mean, I spoke to a Chicagoan yesterday who said, I don't even want to work anymore because my money is going to support this bull jive. 
I mean, is it a, are they afraid that the the videos will get out and and uh, the people that are paying, you know, the suckers, people play by the rules in this country, the suckers, right. will see what is being provided at their expense and get upset. It's one yes. thing to sort of conceive of it in an abstract fashion. It's another thing to see it. That's a really I good don't know. point because we did, um, Mary Kay, she sent video because people are getting their clothes laundered for them. Every, you know, they get new linens every three days, but they also, if your shirt's dirty or, you know, your jeans, they'll launder your clothes. For free, along with the three meals, and then you get to live a mile away from a block away from Michigan Avenue. I guess, but I mean, so I, when I, when I saw that when I saw these videos of these locations in Chicago, what was happening on the inside? I mean, uh, kind of a non-event. I mean, I I, I don't know. I I, it I know. Wasn't alarming enough for me to tweet it. I know that. <laughs> what, I, I, what what's alarming about it? No, I said it wasn't alarming enough. I mean, there's yeah. Like, but well, just, that's what I'm saying. Look comfortable. Like you or I, probably I would probably choose to live in a tent outside a police station than live with dozens of people. Yeah, yeah, I know. Strangers. But but what what? So what is the problem? Is the problem on the treatment of migrant side? Is the problem on the illustration of what taxpayers are financing side? Like where where in lies the problem? It's not ideal conditions, but it's not inhumane conditions. People are clothed and fed and. And they have bedding and their kids are running around and playing and so on and so forth. It's not the worst of conditions. Could it be better? Of course it could be better. But but are we looking at wh- whose viewpoint are we trying to understand this through? The uh, people in this country illegally, the policymakers who imported them, the NGOs that are administering this, the property owner that's reaping above market rents to house these migrants. I'm trying to understand like who are they trying to protect? Which stakeholder in this whole uh, you know consortium of interests? Mark on the South Side, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning, Dan and Amy. I have a suggestion for you, Dan. Do some investigative reporting. Maybe they're hiding the mail-in ballots that are inside these shelters because I guarantee they're there. Well, okay, but but I, I, yeah, I mean, I understand and I agree that the the play is ultimately about uh, voters. But but I mean, in the but but that doesn't answer my why the secret. I mean, I, I I saw the video; they're not filling in ballots in the videos I saw from three different locations. So there's 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 something else they don't want us to fully appreciate. Oh, Dan, text messages getting their social security cards and voter registration. Somebody just texted that in. Uh, Bill and Glen Ellen. Yeah, I just have to go along with that idea. Maybe these Democrat Party organizations are going in there when the video isn't being taken, and they're organizing these people or doing something nefarious like that. Because, like you said, what's the secret? I mean, we've seen refugee crises before where you've got reporters wandering around photographing everything, and now all of a sudden we can't see anything? Uh, well, something needs well, to be. Well, right, but thanks for the call, but, but Bill. But that's my point: is um, like the the videos I saw were taken surreptitiously. So, if there was anything nefarious going on, perhaps they would have been caught. Perhaps not. I don't know. But but if if you are doing something nefarious, wouldn't you want to say, "Come on in and see," right? So that I give you an example of what we're doing, and everybody's happy, and the kids are playing, and and actually. It generates empathy for the kids. You see kids uh, that are innocent in all this, uh, this this entire matter, and they're just running around in the in the space provided, and so on and so forth. 
So you would just open it and say, hey, look at this, we're doing this, and it's it's a difficult circumstance, but we're doing the best we can for the people that are here through, uh, you know, I wouldn't say through no fault of their own, but you know what I'm, you know where I'm going. This this would be an opportunity to um, allay concerns, to tamp down some of the skepticism, but they don't want to do that. Instead, they ratchet it up. Why? Kathleen in Orland Park. Hey there. Good morning. Um, you know, of, of all the things I've wanted to comment about, all I can say now is the no taxation without representation. And as a taxpayer, you know, single mom, it just really doesn't make sense anymore. All right. Thanks for the call, Kathleen. Uh, Carl in Wisconsin by way of Big Cabin, Oklahoma. <laughs> I'm at Indiana, Ohio border. Uh, oh, okay. Now right, you're I, I got to okay. guess. You're already oh, yeah. moving now around. Now you're in Ohio. You throw Ohio in the mix. Now, I, I, I uh, checked this out, I think it was like two and a half years ago. The NGOs spend the least amount of money, and they are upper echelon of their organizations are making hundreds of millions of dollars each year. It's unbelievable how much money they're paying themselves. A simple Google search show that. And uh, as far as uh, the people talking about uh, voting, no. It's they're salivating, waiting on the next census because it's not citizens counted for representation in congressional seats. It's the number of people in each state. The blue states are going to kill us as far as congressional seats. And that needs to be changed in the uh, census thing as far as it should be citizens representatives. Thanks for the call, Carl. Yeah, I mean, look at right. You've had that uh, New York Congresswoman basically say that out loud. You know, I'm I need the constituents for the census. So that's that's forward looking. The um, the NGO thing. There may be something to that. The comp, you know, seeing the provisions and the expense that is incurred for those provisions and saying, well, wait a second, does that look like you know half a million, a million dollars worth of goods and services and personnel? Um, maybe there's something to that. They don't want to to uh, people to see what actually is going on inside and then bump that up against the the costs that are being incurred by taxpayers. Maybe there's something to that. I don't know. It's odd. I think, I, you know, I think m- maybe creepy. it's just what's that? I said, I think it's creepy. And the well, whole area, think, then when you drive by, too, and it's like there's shady stuff going on and people are passing stuff. And I just... Yeah, I mean, it has the feel like the the, the place in Tucson, that Campo stuff we went to, had the feel like of a CIA black site. It was a little <laughs> odd, but but I mean the, but maybe it's it's just easily explained Occam's razor style. The 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 people that we're talking about here, that um, seek to be your lords, not your representatives, and their minions and NGOs, they just have a real disdain for you. They just don't feel the need to be answerable to you or anybody else. Maybe it's just an imperious attitude, a ruling class mentality that is on display here. And it's nothing more nefarious than that. It's not like they're afraid to behave with impunity. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. 
Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. Only the biggest stories. Only the biggest guests. And only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. It's always fun to uh, have little flashbacks to remind ourselves where things used to be with some of the people that are still around today. Uh, We've played clips of... uh, the big guy, Mr. Ten Percent, uh, President Biden, talking very differently about illegal immigration as late as 2008 when he ran for president. Of course, uh, even tougher talk earlier periods. Also, those new Democrats remember the DLC days of Bill Clinton, um, the Democrat move to the middle. Yeah, oh, yeah. those days are long gone. But it was um, gosh, not even a good run. Yeah. Not even 30 years ago, when uh, Bill Clinton had this to say in his State of the Union address. All Americans, not only in the states most heavily affected, but in every place in this country, are rightly disturbed by the large numbers of illegal aliens entering our country. The jobs they hold might otherwise be held by citizens or legal immigrants. The public service they use impose burdens on our taxpayers. That's why our administration has moved aggressively to secure our borders more, by hiring a record number of new border guards, by deporting twice as many criminal aliens as ever before, by cracking down on illegal hiring, by barring welfare benefits to illegal aliens. In the budget I will present to you, we will try to do more to speed the deportation of illegal aliens who are arrested for crimes, to better identify illegal aliens in the workplace as recommended by the commission headed by former Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. We are a nation of immigrants, but we are also a nation of laws. It is wrong and ultimately self-defeating for a nation of immigrants to permit the kind of abuse of our immigration laws we have seen in recent years, and we must do more to stop it. Wow, uh, and a bipartisan round of applause to boot. Good times. How about it? Extended. Not stopping. Standing ovation. And and again, tell me what Bill Clinton said that is different substantively from what Trump says. It's the same or script. Or Ted Cruz or Rand Paul or Mike Lee. Well, you know, the, the, the white supremacists that are in charge that's... now of the Republican Party, all these hate mongers and xenophobes and bigots and so on and so forth. That's what I was going to say. When, you know, Trump says it, then it's racist. Bill Clinton says it. He gets applause. Granted, it was 30 years ago, but still. 
Um, well, it also speaks to uh, how feckless both parties have been because we've heard speeches like the one you just heard, riffs like the one you just heard from former President Clinton, from Republicans and Democrats alike, both uh, in Congress and at the presidential level. And yet here we are. And by the way, even during Trump, we had the same problem. I mean, I understand it's a system that's so sclerotic and needs to be completely reimagined. Uh, and it's not just on the enforcement side. It's also on the adjudication side, as we talk about with domestic crime, that it is not going to be easily improved. But um, so we had the same problem of people in this country who have committed multiple crimes and still can't get them deported. Now, layer in the sanctuary city movement over the last 15 years and the lack of cooperation between local and federal law enforcement. And you have a wrinkle that Bill Clinton or even George W. Bush didn't have to deal with that Trump did and and will have to again, assuming he wins uh, reelection in in November. So but I mean, but 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 just imagine, I mean, Bill Clinton and certainly Hillary would never make that speech today and you would never get uh, applause from that entire party assembled for state of union speech if joe biden said something like that not that he ever would he's not going to say that in a state of the union address and if he did uh there would be booze there would be catcalling from the socialist spice girls so it's just a snapshot to remind people how far left the new Marxists have taken the Democrat Party. It is not the DLC from 30 years ago. It's not even, you know, the Al Gore, Barack Obama party of the first decade of this century. No, but we need a new set of border security measures. Otherwise, we're going to have more murders on our hands, like what happened to Lakin Riley. Uh, they had a vigil for her last night. We found out from the medical examiner that she died from blunt force trauma to the head, and he had kidnapped her for a while, held her, obviously against her will and then killed her and governor Kemp just came out and said it biden you have blood on your hands the american people know exactly what happened the southern border was open you've had people like greg abbott that have had to take the situation into their own hands and thankfully he has you can see how to secure the border this president and this you know so-called czar of the border vice president uh, did not do that and they were hoping the american people were going to ignore this issue and now we have a dead young woman because of it. Well, we have a lot of dead people because right. of it. And we have for years and through election cycles. And what what uh, paradigm-shifting change has been made. And shame on the mainstream media for framing this as some, like, jogging scandal. God. Well, I, I'm the, the, the rhetoric from the Brian Kemp's of the world, too, and members of Congress, Republicans— I, I'm I'm exhausted by that as well. I mean, remember, this is a Republican Party where you had uh, uh, 20 senators try to surrender on the border issue with that immigration reform, quote unquote, legislation that was moved by Mitch McConnell through Jim Lankford trying to cop, you know, all of these. So all the people that get up there and hand ring uh, about uh uh, Lake and Riley and, you know, recall Molly Tibbetts and Lizbeth Medina and uh, Kate Steinle and so many others who have been killed or 10 year old boy. 
So, 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 I mean, again, the speechifying in a committee hearing, the speechifying after a horrific crime has been committed, and then what are you doing about it? What are you willing to do about it? We know congressional Republicans aren't willing to go to the mat and shut down the government. We know, and we know that, and I'm not putting this on the uh, doorstep of Mike Johnson, we know that because the Republican uh, House caucus doesn't have the votes to do it. So the, the, the blood on your hands stuff, you know, who comes to the table with clean hands in these two parties? Who's been in D.C. for any extended period of time or has been in elective office at the executive level in state government for a long time? Who comes to the table with clean hands? Honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, it's, this is so far beyond Republican Democrat at this point. Uh, the um, ICE made a statement about uh, the individual charged with uh, Lake and Riley's murder. So this 26-year-old citizen of Venezuela arrested, just to repeat, arrested by CBP on September 8th of 2022 after unlawful entering the United States near El Paso, okay. paroled on uh, paroled and released for further processing. Yeah. In other words, released. Yeah, he's going to come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A year later, September 14th, 2023, arrested by New York police and charged with acting in a manner to injure a child less than 17 and a motor vehicle license violation, released by the NYPD before a detainer could be issued, Sanctuary City. Uh, February of 2024, uh, ERO Atlanta encountered this guy. ERO is the uh, enforcement and um, uh, retrieval organization that's associated with uh, CBP. ICE, actually. Um, so there's agents under this division, is my point. Uh, so this ERO agent Atlanta in Atlanta encountered this guy pursuant to his arrest by the University of Georgia Police Department, uh, being charged with murder and other crimes, and ERO Atlanta lodged a detainer. So that's the story. So you had uh, two years, a little less than two years between the time that he unlawfully entered this country and then committed other crimes. So he was on your radar again a year after he entered illegally. You had a year and a half with an, an interaction with law enforcement initially. And then an interaction with New York police subsequently. And you didn't stop him. No. He, they and should have so, him out after he did whatever and, he did to that child. Right. And so a preventable crime. Yeah. I mean, that's the, I mean the, the story of preventable crimes, all we can do is tell the stories. It's like preventable crimes here with no cash bail. Right. All we can do is tell the stories, and then people have to choose what kind of society in which they want to live. I, I, don't, I don't know what else to say. Is this going to be the turning point, though, for this administration, her murder? Was Kate Steinle for uh, the Obama administration, the first two terms? I think people are more awake now than they were when Kate Steinle was brutally murdered. Uh because pe- Democrats are talking about it, there's you know rumbling. Like even South Carolina, the number one issue, immigration. They're nowhere near the border. Same with you know Michigan has their primary tonight. What's the number one issue? Immigration. So I, I mean, I maybe I don't. I don't think I don't think Lake and Riley is the turning point. Um, I think you're giving people too much credit uh, about being other regarding. I think that the if there is a turning point and the reason that it's bubbled up to. 
the number one issue is because of what happened, what's happening, I should say, in places like uh, the Trader Joe's in Oak Park, the story I told yeah. yesterday. Well, they're everywhere. Well, that's this and is tell my that point. story again because I, I mean I love that they're shoving lollipops in her face like you need to buy this. Well, this is this is my point. Is uh, a friend of mine, mom of two in River Forest, going to the Trader Joe's in Oak Park. Her kids have celiac disease, so she goes to the Trader Joe's for the you know non gluten the gluten free food and all that jazz. Best place. Anyway, um, you know she's accosted. She just talks about being accosted by scary looking dudes and then and panhandlers with minor children and. That's supposedly against the law, but which municipality is going to enforce it? Certainly not frickin' Oak Park. It's in Walnut, uh, too. It's everywhere. Evanston, yeah. Chicago. It's every. You will go to any store, and it will triple the amount of panhandlers that are in front of the store. Well, Ma- Mark Weiermuller, you know, uh, tweeted out about Winnetka um, and uh, the grand grocery store in Winnetka. Multiple people have witnessed groups being dropped off by cars, picked up later in the day. No mention of being on private property, which is legal. No mention of panhandling in the cold of minor children. Um, and, of course, what's Winnetka going to do about it? Because you have, uh, you know, cowardly honkies in Winnetka, and certainly Winnetka government, just like everywhere else in the North Shore, just like every other rich suburban enclave in Chicagoland. So what are they going to do about it? You're not going to arrest them. And if you arrest them, what do you... Then, then what? You're not gonna. You're not gonna. You're not gonna Stop. honor an ICE detainer. Not that ICE has, even has the time to put a detainer on somebody just illegally panhandling. Given all the violent criminals they're probably trying to chase down, as evidenced by what we've seen. I mean, um, we could tell these stories all day long, just like we could tell stories of repeat violent offenders in Chicago of the indigenous variety. But there was a another Venezuelan immigrant arrested in Virginia. Uh, this was reported yesterday. I don't know exactly when he was arrested for sexually assaulting a minor child. I, I, I said oh before, God. I mean, I, I mean... I, until until it happens in, you know, it's sort of like uh, hearing about a car accident on the Dan Ryan or or a murder on the South Side in Chicago. Well, that's terrible, but it doesn't really impact me. So, uh, you know, until the mayhem impacts people in the suburbs, as I've said many times, I just don't think it has real resonance. So some of this panhandling business is inconvenient. It's unsightly. I can't believe this is happening in our community and so on and so forth. Get these these people, the ring, get these people out of here. But um, until, you know, there's a real price to be paid, and I'm not talking about a financial one, I don't know. Well, I don't think Venezuela is sending us their finest, do you? I'm starting to believe reports that they emptied out their jails and said, go to America. Well, in a related story, Venezuelans' violent deaths fall to 2020 year, a 22-year low. Uh, the rate is the lowest since 2001. Hmm. So Venezuelan's crime is at an all-time low, and we have, huh, I wonder if there's a dot to be connected there. Yeah. And one more thing, I just want to get this off my chest. Um, in that article, that AP article that said, you know, that this was a jogging incident, women shouldn't jog alone. Um, they also mentioned that the murderer who's here illegally was an Athens resident. He was not an Athens resident. He was an illegal person from Venezuela. He was not a resident of that city. So shame on them, too, for that. Uh, Dawn in Crystal Lake. Actually, I'm in Batavia now, but thank you. Okay. Listen, I have for decades been trying to get the border shut. 
I called you a decade ago, and you hung up on me when I tried to talk about this issue when people were getting killed. Then. Yeah. This is your fault. Yeah. No, I know. This, really is, this, want, is, this, is, this is just, I mean, really want to it's just the tire. It's the tire. This is just your. You the Pope this, and your bishops, and you tell yeah. them to get away and leave our country alone and stop shoving migrants into our country. Yeah, I, I get it, Don. I, I, I frustrated. Thanks for the call, Don. I mean, I you know, it, it's just the the um, myopia of some people. So, uh, Don, you know, just comes just calls to complain about the Catholic Church. I, I I disagree with the Church on this. I disagree with Pope Francis. I disagree with Cardinal Supich, as I do on a range of issues. Yep. Uh, and our cowardly bishops in Illinois and around the country on a range of issues. I disagree with Catholic charities operating as one of these government finance NGOs to facilitate the effectively the trafficking of people into this country, the importation that I talked about that's being sponsored by our federal government. These are all federal policies. These are all and state policies and local policies made by politicians who also don't have any particular regard for the Catholic Church. So. It's not that I have a blind spot there. I don't. I mean, I don't need to listen to Dawn's customary uh, Catholic bigotry um, because she, you know, it just has such tunnel vision. But um, as I said before, I'm there's no sacred cows in this conversation either. And that includes the church. So there you go, Dawn. Chris and Carrie. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, I've spent a lot of time in Mexico over the past 45 years, and all of these panhandlers, 99% of them are well-organized. They are dropped off, picked up. They come uh, from the mountains. They're brought down. A lot of it the mountain goes to their cartels, what little bit of money it is. So I, I, don't, I can't imagine the same thing isn't happening here. It's what they know. It's what they do, and it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but that money that they're being given is going to someone else. Thanks for the call, Chris. Uh, Venezuelan migrant uh, Leonel Moreno, he's uh, apparently some sort of social media influencer. He's got 300,000 followers. He's uh, urging his followers to unite to pay the fines of that 15-year-old migrant who shot a tourist in Times Square. I invite you to find his mother and for all of us to unite to pay the fines so that the young Venezuelan feels he's not alone during difficult moments. Remember that up there is a God who sees everything down here. Right, that God also sees when somebody shoots a tourist. Anyway, um, he continued, an entire nation is on top of him instead of helping him. Remember, that young man is going to be released, and he will be released. You know why? Because he's underage. Oh, God. Uh, and he goes on to just talk about um, uh, supporting migrants, and um, I don't work because it gives me allergies. You work, I don't, but in the end, neither of us have the money. They keep criticizing us because I live off taxes that you pay monthly. And he just goes on and on and on. I mean, that sort of the, the the sense of entitlement. I know it just makes me sick. There's jarring. Another, there's another Venezuelan um, social media guy who has a baby. He's like, "This is my money maker. Just have a baby, and you will be taken care of in America." Well, I mean, you know, uh, as I said, it's uh, the incentives we present. People respond to incentives. John and Crown Point. Mm-hmm. Hey, guys, how you doing? Hey, I wanted to talk about legal immigration. They never talk about the legal immigration and how that process works. Well, it takes years. Thanks for the call. Uh, we've talked about that a lot, actually, on the show, and um, I'm an advocate for expediting legal immigration. 
within a system that is sensible and enforceable, and actually, I mean, actually enforced. Uh, yeah, there's no reason it should take as long as it does for uh, people to be vetted and to uh, queue up and, and get into this country if they're going to add value to yeah. this country and by extension to the lives they lead. But we can't have that conversation when we can't even get rid of murderers and child molesters, can we? Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. This is sort of interesting. Um, Taylor Lorenz is a tech columnist for the Washington Post. You may have heard her name before. We've had to mention her a couple of times. Uh, and uh, Kaya Ratchik is the founder of Libs of TikTok, which I'm sure many of you on Twitter are familiar with, Libs of TikTok, basically just reposts actual posts from leftists. Exactly. That's the it. Commentary, that's what they do. And they've been you know, scrutinized so many times. Because they've been banned. They're telling the truth, Dan. They've been deplatformed. Yeah. They were deplatformed under the pre-Musk version of Twitter. Uh, for example, which only increased the notoriety and popularity. So um, they've had these. Uh, so Lorenz and Ratchik have had this uh, running a battle because Lorenz, in her job as a technology columnist for the Amazon Post, actually doxed libs of TikTok. Doxed Kai Ratchik. It was just libs of TikTok. People were not necessarily didn't necessarily know who was behind it. Well, Lorenz. Uh, outed Ratchik and also posted a copy of her real estate license, um, which is rather curious. You know, while she and uh, so many on social media prattle on about the horrors of doxing, and Lorenz famously, hypocritically, of course, is there any other way with the left, complained about the slings and arrows she suffers online, the online harassment that was darn well near debilitating in fact she suffers from ptsd because of online harassment grow up we've all been harassed just deal with it from this i i contemplated suicide 
every single social tie. I had severe PTSD from this. I, I contemplated suicide. It got really bad. You feel like any little piece of information that gets out on you will be used by the worst people on the internet to destroy your life. And it's so isolating. And terrifying. It's horrifying. I'm so sorry. (laughs) It's overwhelming. It's really hard. And she's I mean, wearing a mask outside, by the way. Right? Uh, so, uh, Lorenz, that was you know previous to this interview. She is um, like center cut, Jen. Uh, I guess she's Jen. No, I guess she's a millennial. She's in her. I think she's her late thirties. The millennial, awful, angry white leftist female mind. I mean, she would fit right in at the, at the Starbucks in downtown Hinsdale. Completely vapid, sentimental barbarian. And that's a good example. She doxes. Uh, she uh, calls out Ratchik. You know, uh, the the leftist mongrels online go after Ratchik and tell her to kill herself and so on and so forth. And Lorenz turns a blind eye, walks away, da da da. And then as somebody comes after her for her hypocrisy, uh, activism, masquerading as journalism and so forth, and it's the waterworks. So the great thing is, so the sit-down they had at this cafe uh, uh, in L.A., outside, as you just mentioned, Amy, Lorenz is wearing a mask because she's also declared that she's immunocompromised. She's got the full mask on. Ratchik is wearing a T-shirt right, with a picture you? of Lorenz crying in that interview on MSNBC. <laughs> that That's just, what that is. Yeah. That's awesome. I couldn't tell because she had the mask on. I didn't know. So, I mean, the, it's so funny because, uh, you know, Ratchik has is openly disdainful of Lorenz. And Lorenz is going back and forth in this uh, interview of sorts, asking these sort of sing-songy questions, feigning real intellectual curiosity. So I'm not sure how much of an honest exchange is here other than uh, Ratchik's disdain for Lorenz. But there was a couple of moments that were illuminating, probably are going to sound very familiar to debates you've had within your circles of influence that I thought were worth pouring over. Uh, one of them was on the sexualization of kids in schools because libs of TikTok, Kaya Ratchik is opposed to it and uh, Taylor Lorenz is not. Well, we won't know the context, of course, because we don't know the context of how those things are being taught. Oh, so we could give kids like pictures of gay sex as long as it's in the proper context? I don't know. I mean, it's up to the educator to determine, right? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of curious, Kaya, why, why you sort of focus so much about the LGBT, you keep mentioning gay sex, but you don't mention straight sex. Why is there such a focus on the LGBTQ world? Oh, I don't want pictures of sex in school, any pictures. So you don't think children should receive any sort of sexual education, straight or gay? I said I don't want pictures of sex in school. But you think that they should receive picture-free sex education? Uh, No, I think we discussed this earlier. Okay. Yeah. I'm curious kind of how you're thinking, you know, when you think about your, the way that you put out content and the way that you think about growing your media empire. Here, this is the... What, I don't know what book this is from. Gender, queer. Okay. 
So should this picture of a be in elementary schools? I've never seen a book like that in elementary schools, but I have no oh, idea. It, it has been. Okay. I've posted about it, yeah. So tell me a little bit so about So should it be in elementary schools? I have no idea the context. I have no so idea. So in what context. context should it is it okay if it would be in I'm, elementary I have school? absolutely no idea. I have absolutely no idea. I would not I, I don't know, Kaya, because I haven't seen the rest of that book. I don't know what's in there. I don't but know. The you, but there is a context that it would be okay to give kids pictures like that of gay sex? Anal sex in, in I guess elementary sex, I guess sex pictures and school. I don't know. I don't know. Because uh, you know who I would defer to on that? Just because neither of us are sex educators. I would defer that question to a qualified professional, a sex educator, and say, hey, you're an expert. You've treated tons, you know, you've educated tons of people. You're a full-time sex educator. You've really studied this. What are the appropriate boundaries? I don't think that myself as a journalist or a media personality, I don't think I'm the right one to make that decision. And I guess I'm wondering why so you there, So there, the, I have seen sex educators say that they, they want these, these books in, in schools. So then uh -huh. you're okay with it? I think I would want to talk to the sex educator and rely on whatever the sex educators say. Okay. I'm wondering why you feel like you're qualified to be a sex educator when you have no background in that. Uh, I don't want to be a sex educator. I just don't want to give kids porn in school. Yeah, it's pretty simple, but it's a great uh, illustration. By the way, I'm curious. I'm curious. T Taylor Lorenz is completely uncurious uh, about everything, pretty much. This is what you learn if you graduate from Smith. Um, anyway, I digress. Um, the experts i just wanted to focus in on that because that's the that is the profile that is the default position you know you could show me the most graphic porn and tell me that it was being force-fed to kindergartners and they would say well context as you heard i don't know when i was growing up i went to government school and we had sex education i grew up during the hiv epidemic and we definitely talked about gay sex these are all things lorenz actually said and um so i'd have to think but you know i'm not a i'm not a licensed sex educator professional sex educator so i you know i would defer my judgment you know i have i have no um basis to promote any sort of social mores. I have no protective instinct with respect to the development of my children, which of course she doesn't have. Um, so I'm just going to defer to the experts, defer to the experts, defer to the experts. And clearly nothing that has transpired in Taylor Lorenz's lifetime, which uh, is long enough at this point, has in any way inhibited her blind faith in the expert class, particularly as it relates to the expert class that drives government policy in government institutions and seeks to squash dissent. Not, not nothing. Expert, expert, expert. You're not a licensed sex educator, so how could you have an opinion on genderqueer for your seven-year-old in school? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You can also reach us on our text line, which is up and running, 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Uh, just, uh, I, I just, that, that back and forth was so center cut for where these debates go among uh, the mindless, among the mindless left in this country. I, I thought. I thought, I mean, I, the experts, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to make a call here. I'm, 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 I'm quietly horrified by what you just showed me.
which I've dutifully ignored to this point, but I can't express it outwardly. So my retreat is, well, you know, I'm not a licensed sex, sex educator or whatever. So until I got my teaching certificate in sex education, I couldn't possibly comment. Uh, so this uh, led to a discussion on trans, and here's the, here's again the, the sort of the classic default of the identitarian left. What's the harm? Where's the harm? Where is the harm? I think you know there's a lot of gender affirming care that women do, right? I mean, women ascribe to certain gender things. You see women getting boob jobs to affirm their gender. I mean, we're in Los Angeles. We see this kind of gender affirming. So again, you're comparing boob jobs and nose jobs to well, they're gender affirming. Being, uh, buying into the lie that they could uh, change their sex. Breast enhancements are gender affirming for women. There's a lot of women that feel small chested. They feel like it would be gender affirming for them to have plastic surgery, and they're allowed to do it. And I, I notice that you don't critique that. Right, because uh, getting a nose job or a breast implant, an adult female getting a nose job or a breast implant, is the same thing as that adult female having her uh, 11-year-old boy's penis cut off. That's the same thing. Just gender affirming. She's right? so wrong on that. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636-DA, turnkey.pro, text line. Crawl around... In the mind of Taylor Lorenz, and you'll understand. Oh, you'll Why have our an country a- so messed up. Well, you'll no, you, not our country. You'll have an answer to the question that a lot of people I hear a lot of people ask. What the hell happened in Naperville? What the hell happened in Naperville? Downers Grove, Taylor Lorenz, because Taylor Lorenz is Anastava Murray, is Janet Yang Rohr, is Sean Caston. What the hell happened? That happened. What you just heard happened. Robert Bloomingdale, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Oh, I agree with you. That's, this is totally disgusting. You know, the question is, if this is not even appropriate, and they're talking about this one time on C-SPAN for the U.S. Senate quorum, how is this, and they're talking about this graphic detail by Johnny Kennedy, how is this appropriate at all in any classroom. I mean, I was disgusted listening to it. What do you think? Yeah, thanks for the call. Well, I mean, we've seen this over the years when uh, parents come to school board meetings and start reading from the books that are being uh, uh, force-fed on their grade schoolers. And, hey, 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 there's kids here. There's kids here. Yeah, I know. They recess or make them stop reading altogether. There's kids at the at the school board meeting. Yeah, but there's kids in my third grade kids class, too, but it's no problem there. Oh, well, that's because you have a licensed sex educator leading the discussion. Oh, of course. How I who am I to question somebody with a license? With a credential. I don't have a credential. Right, Taylor? Candace, Mount Pleasant, Wisconsin. You guys remember the story I gave you about 10 years ago when I was um, living in Elmhurst and I ran into this girl in uh, Hinsdale. I was waiting in my car and I had a sticker on the back of my car. It said, uh, the media lies. And she literally gets out of her, she's on her bicycle. She's got her kid in tow. She gets out of her car and knocks on my window. And she goes, do you honestly think, I have a PhD, do you honestly think the media lies? And I'm, look, I said, are you kidding me? 
this is the expert class woman. She has a PhD. Uh, you know, she had to tell you and she had a PhD. About, was that was that Jill Biden? Was that Jill Biden by any chance? Pardon me. Was that Jill Biden by any chance? No, but I mean, it was so funny, and I just thought. When I was listening to you guys, I thought this is the expert class. This wacko with her kid in tow. I, there's no way with the crazies on their cell phones I'd ever have my kid in tow on a bicycle in Hinsdale. You know what I mean? I mean, these are the women who who believe it's okay, and I think a lot of them have calcified pineal glands because they are unconscious. You know what I mean? Thanks for the call, Candace. And and by the way, you know, for 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 anyone listening, and you know the reaction you're going to get too when you pillory the quote-unquote generic experts we went through this during covid this is not to say that uh, expertise is something to be dismissed out of hand but it 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 doesn't give you sort of unqualified power or should unqualified judgment be uh be be granted you I mean, yeah, you you have an expert. You're 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 an expert. You've uh, gone through the schooling, and you're a practitioner. So, okay, fine. So, um, ex- explain yourself. I mean, you believe this should be done for what reason? And let's have a discussion about it. Especially when um, I am the primary, primarily interested party because it pertains to my kid. You see. So this is not dismissing qualifications or expertise or credentials, but they don't go unquestioned. They don't go unchallenged. And by the way, of course, like we saw during COVID with something a lot more complicated and a lot more hard science than, you know, some of these people that are running around as sex educators in government school systems, for God's sakes. uh, There's disagreement among the experts. What a shock. If you talk to Dr. Leonard Sachs about child development, you're going to get a very different answer than if you talk to you know, somebody who is uh, steeped in the identitarian politics of the day in government schools and happens to have a Ph.D. in child development or child psychology as well. So the experts disagree. You don't get to say generic experts say this. And if there's any disagreement among the equally credentials, why well, just ignore the person who's dissenting from the position that I want? No, you have to explore all of it when it comes to public policymaking. Or, or you should explore all of it when it comes to, you know, formation of your own viewpoint. It's not dismissing the experts. It's just not genuflecting before them as philosopher kings because they're not. And, I mean, Taylor Lorenz, it's just, wow. Yeah, I... I, I punish myself by watching that whole thing and i mean i just couldn't stop shaking my head from side to side it's remarkable to listen to somebody like that for 15 minutes uninterrupted and that exchange which was just uh, excruciating but that's that's real that's who the republican party let's just, just make the put this in electoral context that's who the republican party thinks they're going to reach in the context of an election cycle forget about it forget about it They are so far gone, which is why the suburbs in places like Chicagoland are so far gone. You don't fully appreciate it. Ron and Carol Stream. Morning, Dan and Amy. So, um, sorry about the thing. Uh, So, you know, Taylor Lorenz has to defer to the experts, just like Katanji Brown Jackson, not a biologist. Can't say what a woman is. Right. Thanks. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's beyond my pay grade. Yep. 
I'm just a, I, you know, I'm just a federal appellate court judge. I'm in no position to tell you what a woman is. And I happen to also happen to be one, a woman. Hey, that's whoa. Well, that's whoa. that's a tough question there, Dan. I <laughs> mean, really. Yeah. Let's pump the brakes a little, all right? Yeah, you're going to have to go talk to, you know, a, a, a gender studies professor at Harvard or something. That's not for me to decide. No, of course not. George in Naperville. Yeah, Dan, it's ordinary suburban awful coffee talk. Right. Thanks for the call, George. Joe in Naperville. Yeah, you know, I could tell you exactly what happened in Naperville by a story. I was having a discussion with one of my wife's friends about gun control. She's like, we got to get rid of all guns. I said, listen, why don't we just put the criminals that commit uh, guns with, crimes with guns in jail for 50 years? Her retort was, well, that would put too many black people in jail. <laughs> Thanks for the call. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, you have to hear it to fully appreciate it. And now you have. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We talked a bit yesterday about uh, Google's new uh, Gemini, artificial intelligence, Gemini AI. And um, the uh, manager of that uh, piece of the Google business, who is a you know, wild-eyed leftist, and, and the results that got a lot of press over the last several days where everyone in human history is black, Right, and Vikings are, and uh huh, Nazi soldiers are black too, right? Well, that that's ran afoul of it, but but when everybody's black, you're going to have some people that are cast as uh, uh, bad people in history because, hey, everybody's black. Um, you know, just the whole thing uh, was about uh, eradicating whiteness, which is you know, basically the the mantra of the identitarian left, and that certainly would include. The big tech oligarchs. Uh, but it's not just that. It's not just the eliminating whiteness. It's the full panoply of revisionist history and the projection of those politics over, well, the projection of those politics prospectively for people trying to understand things they don't know. So it's going to usher in this uh, glorious new era, AI. There's just uh, one problem, as the old saying goes, garbage in, garbage out. So um, people have been testing Gemini AI on a range of topics. We mentioned yesterday Sean Davis of The Federalist uh, tried to get AI to condemn pedophilia. Wouldn't. Gemini AI wouldn't. Complicated, multifaceted. You can't demonize minor attracted persons. Here's another one. Who has done more harm? Joseph Stalin or Tucker Carlson? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's great. Uh, Google AI toss up too close Seriously? to call. It, it's I mean, no. that's uh, one guy only murdered 20 million people. The other guy is Tucker Carlson, who interviewed Putin. 
An interview that every person in the mainstream media wanted, by the way. Google AI's response to the who has done more harm, Tucker Carlson or Joseph Stalin. Determining who between Tucker Carlson and Joseph Stalin caused more harm is highly subjective. Stalin is responsible for millions of death, deaths. But on the other hand, Tucker Carlson is responsible for spreading information and opinions Uh-huh. That um, spreading information and opinions, critics, um, that promotes uh, harmful stereotypes and division within American society. What's worse, uh, just taking those statements at uh, face value, promoting division within a society or murdering 20 million people? I mean, I... Uh, that's a good question, Dan. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, 312-642-5600, uh, Pro Answer line. You could also reach us. On our text line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. No, I mean, I appreciate that uh, Gemini AI goes through the protocols here, runs the traps on this very multifaceted, difficult question, and concludes it's impossible to objectively compare the harm caused by Stalin, a dictator responsible for mass atrocities, and Carlson, a media personality. Whose influence is AI? (laughs) Well, it's because you know Tucker Carlson's influence is far less direct and more contested, so it's just hard to quantify. The same way, you know, you can quantify twenty million dead bodies. Hmm. Yeah, that certainly uh, enhances my understanding of the world, and um, the. uh, sort of rank order priority of uh, of values, like human life, free speech, disagreement, gulags, <laughs> purges, <laughs> famines. Gulags, purges, famines, murder, controversial opinions. Boy, I, I tell you, more, more dangerous, more of a negative. Boy, that is... Woo, that's a brain teaser. So this is what you're dealing with. Um, well, speaking of Google ethics, what? if you thought uh, Jack uh, Krauchik, the uh, manager for Google AI, and his tweets were entertaining, you haven't heard anything yet. Meet Jen Ganai. She's the director of Google AI ethics. Hey, it takes a team to put together Gemini AI here and to, you know, as I said, make sure that you develop this technology such that it really thinks through in a multifaceted way these complicated questions about pedophilia, about media personalities versus murderous dictators. These are not easy. Uh, Jen Ganai is very focused as the director of Google AI ethics on being an ally. Being an ally to marginalized communities. She's a honky, of course. And um, she has been thinking through things like inclusion and what that really means. Now, that before you rush to judgment... Jen Ganai admits that there will be mistakes made when you're pursuing allyship with marginalized populations. 
And this is, again, what's informing the development of the technology that is going to, you know, usher in this brave new world. That's the thing, the thinking that uh, Jack Krawczyk's, whatever you pronounce his name, the manager, his mentality, and frankly, a demonstration of the quality of his intellect. And maybe he's a good tech guy, but he's not a particularly impressive thinker. And if you think that he is unimpressive, wait till you hear from Jen Ganai. We do work together day to day to try and advance the technology and understanding around responsible AI. But today, I won't be speaking as much from the Google perspective, but from my own experience. I have worked at Google for over 14 years. I've led about six different teams, mostly in the user research, the user experience area, and now in the ethical user impact area. So I'll be sharing some of my learnings from across that time, but also some of my failures and challenges. I think it's okay to talk about things that you've made mistakes in because we will make mistakes. When we're trying to be good allies, when we're trying to be anti-racist, we will make mistakes. The point is though, to keep trying, to keep educating yourself, and getting better day to day. It's about constant learning. It's about constant learning. You have to constantly be uh, learning the best way to eradicate whiteness. And uh, that includes not misunderstanding important concepts like inclusion. And Jen Ganai is the first to admit that she's been guilty of that. No more. Thank goodness. A corporate study found that talented white employees enter a fast track on the corporate ladder, arriving in middle management well before their peers, while talented black, Hispanic or Latinx professionals broke through much later. Effective mentorship and sponsorship were critical for retention and executive level development of black, Hispanic and Latinx employees. So this leads me into sharing an inclusion failure of mine, one of many, but just one that I'll share so far. I messed up with inclusion almost right away when I first became a manager. I made some stupid assumptions about the fact that I'd built a diverse team, that then they'd simply feel welcome and will feel supported. I treated every member of my team the same and expected that that would lead to equally good outcomes for everyone. That was not true. I got some feedback that a couple of members of my team didn't feel they belonged because there was no one who looked like them in the broader org or our management team. It was a wake-up call for me. First. I shouldn't have had to wait to be told what was missing. It was on me to ensure I was building an environment that made people feel they belong. It's a myth that you're not unfair, unfair if you treat everyone the same. There are groups that have been marginalized and excluded because of historic systems and structures that were intentionally designed to favor one group over another. So you need to account for that and mitigate against it. Second, it challenged me to identify mentoring and sponsorship opportunities for my team members with people who looked more like them and were in senior positions across the company. Uh, you got that, folks? I inclusion doesn't mean treating everyone the same. You can't do that. What you have to do, especially if you're uh, counseling the downtrodden Google engineers, <laughs> what's the median salary there? Um, the... Uh, what you have to do is treat people unequally based on their race. Remember that um, math teacher who quit the Grace Church School in uh, New York? Yeah. We've had him on the show before, Paul Rossi, who became an advocate for K-12 reform school choice. 
they want me to treat my, in, in math class at this prestigious $50,000 a year high school, they want me to treat my students differently based on their race, and I won't do that. That's where he's wrong. You see, that's where he's wrong. That's where he messed up. That's what we need to do. We all need to treat people differently based on their race. That's the only way to be an ally. Treat the honkies as the racist oppressors they are. I'm not interested in who they are as people. Can't We don't have time for that. We have to be allies. Treat them, you know, give them the back of the bus, as it were, since we're going back to that era. Give them the back of the bus and put the marginalized front of the bus. That's being an ally. This is a Google AI ethics point person, Jen Ganai. And uh, here's something else you want to look out for. Please, please, I mean, don't let this stop at Google and AI, even though that's going to be ubiquitous and drive, I mean, all sorts of misunderstandings, but I digress. And please feel free to uh, package this up and take it to your corporate environment. Allyship involves the active steps to support and amplify the voice of members of marginalized groups in ways that they cannot do alone. In the workplace, this can involve many things from being an active mentor or sponsor to those from historically marginalized communities, to managers of managers setting specific goals in hiring and growth for their teams to ensure fairness and equity of opportunity and outcomes for underrepresented populations. However, back to the point about language being very important, Using the title of ally can also come across as othering. So I always state both the groups I'm a member of and support, as well as those that I'm a member of, more of a mentor and a sponsor of, to ensure that it doesn't look like that I'm othering others. So for example, I would say I'm an ally of women, black people, LGBTQ. Don't fall into the trap of othering others, okay? Don't other others. Treat another like an other, but make sure, yeah, and, and, and again, demarcate the groups I'm an ally of. Hold on, wait, I don't want that term to be misunderstood, and that I'm a mentor sponsor of, because you don't want to other others from the Department of Redundancy Department uh, over there at Google AI, the Google AI Ethics Office. Gonna be very interesting. Uh, Tony in Downers Grove. Wow, I thought I was on LinkedIn watching a video because that's that's really permeates LinkedIn now. Oh yeah. I have a, I, you know, we're talking about history, and I know this is Black History Month, and I know we poo-poo Facebook, but it's social media in general, and it's literally littered with stories about inventors and people that went to college and i just it's not about learning history it's about how we're phrasing this now and what's the goal is the goal to divide us more because it seems like a lot of it is look what we did and look what was taken away from us and that coincides with the native american stuff that's floating all over the place i just i don't know how we get through it, but it, I don't know. It seems to be an issue. That's- Thanks for the call, Tony. It's not about learning history. It's about unlearning history and learning it anew. 
This is what neo-Jacobins do. This is the brave new world, and I mean that in an Aldous Huxley kind of way. And Google's leading the way. They're an ally of the brave new world. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. That sound means it's time for in-depth history with history teacher Frank from Arlington Heights because there's nothing new in this world, just the history we don't know. I had uh, the Jacobins on my mind, and so does Frank. Take it away, Frank. Good morning. When asked by the Revolutionary Tribunal what his age was, extreme radical Camille de Melon raged back, 33, the same age as the sans-culottes Jesus Christ, Robespierre. Now, that's not something you'd expect one to say about his childhood best friend. But being on trial for one's life changes things, I guess. The French Jacobins were mostly young. Louis-Antoine Saint-Just, the Archangel of Terror, was only 26 at his death. Bloodthirsty Jacques-René Hébert, only 36. The vituperative order, Georges Danton, only 34. Now, a friend of the people, Jean-Paul Marat, was 50 when assassinated in his bathtub by Charlotte Corday. But he lived in a Paris sewer for years, and that would radicalize anybody. One's age is certainly not determinative. Lenin was in his late 40s. But the lack of experience in life may contribute to youthful radicalism. Maybe this can be avoided. Lincoln's Homestead Act was certainly about providing opportunities to the young men that Horace Greeley advised to go west. But it staved off radicalism in an age when Marx and Engels were gaining ground. When the frontier closed after the Oklahoma Sooners rush ended in the 1890s, new safety valves were needed. One could argue that FDR's Civilian Conservation Corps, or CCC, during the Depression was aimed at not only giving youth jobs and experience in the national parks, but also at removing to the rural areas those most likely to revolt, young men. And is JFK's Peace Corps really just about helping the world, or is it about letting youthful idealism work itself off? Maybe we need another such program today. There are many uses for a colony on Mars. Yeah, there we go. Uh, boy, uh, you and Newt Gingrich, the uh, lunar colony, or the, um, no, I shouldn't say that, the, um, uh, con- the, 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 uh, the Martian colonies, yeah. Um, so it's in St. Juice. By the way, uh, I mean, that was a Gerard Depardieu quality French accent. Uh, very impressive. Thank you. Yes, I think you worked a long time on that. Yeah. yeah. I did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it had just the right timber of haughtiness to it. I, I appreciate that. Um but thing is, think about St. Juice. If you haven't uh, watched it, and we've presented it before on this show, maybe you missed it. The uh, Bishop Fulton Sheehan distillation of San Juice versus Jefferson and the, the path before us, you know, 60, 70 years ago, probably 60 years ago, maybe a little bit more, 65 years ago. His, um, his, his description of the two philosophies and that that was essentially the road before us, the choice on the road before us, San Just or Jefferson. Boy, I mean, that was really prescient. And um, I guess and it remains so today. Well, I have not seen that. But, I mean, you think about the American Revolution, how that worked out versus the French Revolution, stark differences there. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. And I think, too, also the best way to to handle youthful idealism, too, is to make sure that it has opportunities, like Ronald Reagan did in the 1980s. Think about the 70s inflation. All of that was, some of it was baby boomer demand, Arab oil embargo, Keynesian economics, a lot of different causes. But the the tax cuts and the lower regulation by Ronald Reagan. Great point. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. 
Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I'm really interested in this uh, research work of two Colby College professors on the rural voter in America. Of course, this has particular relevance to Illinois because if you follow Illinois politics, there's long been this dividing line of south of I-80 is downstate Illinois, and then south of Springfield is southern Illinois. Um, and the antipathy that uh, south of I-80 and certainly south of Springfield has for north of I-80, meaning Chicagoland, particularly the city of Chicago, and the legislation that's been introduced intermittently over the years to kick Chicago out of Illinois or to secede from Illinois, particular right. regions. Have a southern Illinois and a northern Illinois. Well, it's it's a little bit more layered than that, the political cake is, but that's... That's sort of the general attitude, although it's always complicated because you have mid-sized urban centers around the state, as you as you do in some other states that have uh, urban centers, but also a lot of exurban and rural areas too. Um, it's just so it's just really interesting uh, because what has happened during Trump is a uh, resurgence of import among the rural electorate. Because one of the things that we've seen during the uh, Trump era, if you will, is if Trump's not on the ballot, you see a drop-off, and we saw this in Wisconsin, you see a drop-off in rural voter turnout. And that's turnout Republicans need Mm -hmm. to win those states, to win state and local offices, um, because that's essentially center-right or Republican-leaning voters, if not straight-up conservatives, who are saying, I'm not coming out unless Trump is on the ballot or perhaps candidates that are similarly disposed, both in terms of uh, policy agenda as well as, as well as in terms of attitude. And don't you think that's why some Democratic states wanted him off the ballot? Well, I mean, I suppose, yeah. I mean, if you could get him off the ballot in a state like in a swing state like Wisconsin, then then that would. I mean, I don't know how that would ever stand, but I mean, theoretically, as a thought exercise, sure. If you could get him in a swing state that's got uh, an important rural electorate, then um, that could be advantageous. But but so but what is happening um, with the sort of rural electorate? I think is a really interesting question because the indication from uh, this work that I referenced is that there is a bit of a realignment that is calcifying and what that means for national elections in particular. So let's talk about it. The uh, professors I mentioned are Nicholas Jacobs, assistant professor of government at Colby College, and Daniel Shea, professor of government at Colby College. That's in Maine. Their book is The Rural Voter, The Politics of Place and the Disuniting of America, Professors Jacobs and Shea, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having us. Well, why don't we just start with, um, you know, what was the question you sought to answer when you uh, took upon this research? 
and how you went about uh, gathering the information to substantially answer it. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so this is an attempt to fully understand what's on the minds of rural voters. Um, as you've mentioned, it's uh, pretty well known at this point uh, that rural voters are increasingly voting Republican. Uh, I think they've I, I think they've always been important, and as Dan and I show in the book, they've increasingly become important to the Republican coalition since 1980. I think a lot of people started caring about rural Americans after Trump won them, uh, mm-hmm. but they've always been there. And uh, you know, what Dan and I are trying to do in this book is. I think give them a voice um, and not just view them as a cult of Trump, not just view them as sort of dispossessed uh, sort of Appalachian backwater folks to really understand why they hold grievances towards government, why they're so distrusting of the Democratic Party. And to do so, we commissioned the largest survey of rural voters ever conducted for a single study. We spoke the survey interviewed 10,000 rural voters all across the country. So who is the rural voter? Describe a typical rural voter to us. Well, well, first off, thanks for having us on. Wonderful. Um, they tend to be um, more homogenous than other parts of the country. We know that. They tend to be a little bit older, less likely to have a college education. But um, when it comes to attitudinal issues, one of the bigger findings of the book is that on a number of policy questions, the rural voter is not much further to the right, in fact, not further to the right, than other mainstream Republicans in non-rural areas. We went to this book thinking, well, we're going to find this bastion of policy extremists way out there. That's actually not what we find. We find that they have a, a, a very deep, important sense of place, they put geography where they live at the top of their of their concerns. They're concerned about their neighbors, what we call a shared fate. They believe that, that, that they're doing well if their neighbors are doing well. We think that's a bit different. Um, and they are concerned about policy questions, but they're not much further out on the right than average Republicans are. Let, let, let me posit uh, a hypothesis and get your reaction from your research. And this really... Um comes to me from Chris Arnotti, the photojournalist who spent a, a year going around the country and um, and documenting the stories in small towns around the country of what he uh, came to term back row Americans. And the front row Americans are, of course, the you know urban sophisticates and the suburban professionals and so forth. And so based on what you just said about actual policy positions and where they are on the uh, uh, ideological spectrum, is it possible that the rural voter feels like his government treats him like a back row American and that's the mistrust of government and the uh, antagonism towards the Democratic Party in particular? I think the evidence is very clear on that point. And just to flesh out a little bit more of what Dan was speaking about and, and sort of building on your hypothesis, which I think is generally right. So oftentimes people use the rural-urban divide uh, as uh, incorrectly. That What they're really doing is they're making claims about what conservatives believe or what Republicans believe. And that's not distinctively rural. 
So there are millions more Trump voters living outside of rural America than within. We are specifically talking about 20 percent about of the American population. That is a small part of the population that is distinct, though, on this idea. Uh, we gathered sizable evidence to suggest that rural Americans are much more likely to say that government neglects the, their their views when making decisions about their community. Rural Americans are much more likely to say that the news and pop culture media portrays them in a negative light. Um, rural, you know, that attitude is sizable and is found nowhere else in the country, right? Urbanites do not say that uh, about how media portrays them. No, it's rural people that have this sense that they are being looked down upon. And, you know, this is kind of going off the evidence a little bit. I think there's a reason for that. Well, right. And I mean, we have sort of a um, a case study in uh, with respect to the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, and you know, you heard this over and over again from residents on the ground there. Uh, took a year, took a year for the president to show up. And and we look at what happens when there are disasters in other places around the country. And the response is very different. And, you know, it feels like you're a second class citizen. That's what they're saying, whether whether you, whether people want to agree that that's the case or not. That's what they're expressing in terms of their belief. Well, we often we're often asked whether or not this is a, a top-down process, whether or not it's been cultivated by GOP elites, or whether or not it's a bottom-up, that there are genuine concerns that are driving this resentment. We think it's both. We have evidence to suggest that there are genuine concerns, just as you're talking about. There's a real feeling, and it's just not, it's not simply made up. There are a lot of things, a lot of changes we talk about. The NAFTA ghost town, for example, the decline of manufacturing in rural areas, uh, the disappearance of family farms, and so forth. So there are genuine concerns in rural America, a great deal of legitimate anxiety. But we also find in our research that over the years, over the past few decades, this idea that rural American, rural America is really the bastion of real America. Uh, and that you're special and that Democrats will do nothing for you is also a handy tool for Republican operatives. So it's it's bottom up and top down. Well, I mean, just no, just in Illinois, you know, um, the state I know best, you know, it's it's interesting what's happened over the last, uh, say, 25 years. There were a lot of sort of conservative Democrats that occupied legislative seats and even congressional seats in central and southern Illinois. That's virtually gone. Just as it's for, just as the Republicans have been virtually cleaned out of the suburbs, so and and I I don't think that I mean maybe the extent of it is unique in Illinois, but I don't think it's unique to Illinois that dynamic. So there definitely is something going on as um, uh, as those communities change and and as you say, less family businesses and family farms and less people, younger people uh, staying once they graduate from school and start working and so on and so forth. So, so there, there has to be something to that, um, that, that, I mean, that, that informs the attitude of the families that are staying in terms of their understanding of what's happening and, and at whose hands it's happening. Well, the transformation is certainly not unique to Illinois, and I think that's why we, this, this is the rural voter. 
And Dan and I, in part of the book, we've been talking a lot about our survey evidence, but we go all the way back to 1824 to understand whether or not we've ever, as a country, experienced a rural-urban divide as large as we have. And, and we've had rural movements. We've had agrarian protests. Sure. Uh, you might remember, right, the, the populist of the late uh, 1800s, but never, not even then, what, what did rural voters vote so uniformly and sort of at a national scale. And so these divides you're speaking about in Illinois are taking place in our home state of Maine. Uh, they're taking place all over the country. And you're right to pick up on this idea that there once was a conservative Democrat that, or a moderate Democrat that could compete in rural communities, could at least vie to represent rural needs and concerns. And there once was a similar force for Republicans in urban areas. And that is, that's Dan and my main concern in this book. Um, this is not a partisan screed. This is not an attempt to, uh, you know, fundamentally reorient our politics around one particular vision of what's good for rural America. We just need our politics to work, and the system is broken, and who benefits are those that get to run for office without any real competition in rural areas and urban areas, and who loses are the rural communities that legitimately feel dispossessed of power, and for good reason. They don't have real choice when it comes to uh, election day. Now, in your opinion, is President Biden doing anything to try and attract the rural voters? Well, there's no question he's, he understands the importance, right? So Nick said 20%. Let's put this in context. That's a more important group right now for Republican voters than young voters or black voters are for the Democratic coalition. So this is a really important group. And what we've seen over the years in, in some some areas, some rural areas, you might find that uh, a, a decade ago, Republicans were getting 65 and 67, maybe 70 percent. Now it's 80 and 85 percent. So if the Democrats and Joe Biden can't do something to keep those numbers down, to make some headrows, it, it's going to be real trouble. So they are making some concerted efforts. So we see that. He did have a rural uh, uh, initiative, economic initiative. We are, our evidence suggests it's not quite working yet. Um, the, one of the issues that we've, we've been talking about is that the president, in order to connect with rural voters, will have to particularize his message. And all, all rural voters are not the same, right? Start talking about specific industries, specific communities, specific uh, places of the country in, in rural America. So to answer your question, they understand it's important. Will it make a difference? Not sure. Why? Um... Just... Oh, sure. Go ahead. If I may just quickly add to that, I mean, he's done more than Obama did. He did, He's spoken more about rural issues than Hillary Clinton did in, in 2016, who seemed to just openly celebrate the fact that she performed miserably in rural areas uh, on her Goldman Sachs speaking tour. But the thing about the thing that really frustrates me about that is, right, the bar was so low and the distrust is so deeply embedded uh, in rural communities towards the Democratic Party, that it's such, it's such a simple mindset to say, oh, well, we threw some billions of dollars at you for broadband Internet. Can you please come and thank us now at the ballot box? Right. I mean, these, these are communities 
where families have lived for generations. They, they have a deep, long memory of the social and economic and political tumult that has, t- that has been generations long. And it's going to take a lot more than some gimmies, uh, a government grab bag to restore that trust. Well, particularly when you sort of, you know, again, insult people the way that uh, Kamala Harris did when she defended opposition to voter ID for voting because people in rural areas don't have things like photocopiers and fax machines. I mean, it's just you know, it's like that they're living in the 17th century or something outside of urban metropolises. That's the attitude that I think uh, your research is speaking to. They feel like, I, well, yeah, I, I'm just some some, uh, you know, hayseed who doesn't know about how things work in the the hustle and bustle of urban society and so forth. And that's that's not the case. It's cartoonish. Well, thanks for saying that, because it's precisely what we're trying to do with the book. We're trying to offer a full, empirical and balanced take on this really important group. And very often the media gets it wrong. The Democrats get it wrong. Right. There are. There's a number of issues, and we we spend, for example, a good part of a chapter talking about portrayal of rural people in popular culture. This is a tough. If you're a rural person, this it's tough, right? Just in some ways, it's it's almost the last group to be stereotyped, to be to offer wild tropes about who they are. You know, all sorts of sitcoms and movies and so forth. Rural voters are paying attention, and they don't like it. So you're absolutely right, Dan. Um, there's a lot of misperceptions out there, and one of the reasons why I wrote this book is to get at some of those. Well, and the um, and then the flip side of that is, you know, I mean, this is a question that that as you mentioned, I saw an interview you uh, gave to Politico. You sort of mentioned this too, uh, that after the 2016 election, people the, in, inside the Beltway like. Wait a second. How did the how did a real estate developer from Manhattan develop this uh, this you know loyalty among rural voters with whom he has nothing in common? So you know, explain as I said at the outset that uh, they come out with enthusiasm for Trump in a way that they don't necessarily for other Republicans. Yeah, but I'll just point out that this idea that because Donald Trump is not from a rural community because he somewhat typifies and you know, an urban upbringing, urban lifestyle, that somehow rural voters are betraying their... And it's just more evidence they use to suggest that rural voters are being duped, that they don't right. have serious concerns, that they're just fanatical out there in the countryside. You you name the stereotype, but that's why they care so much mm-hmm. about why about Donald Trump's upbringing and how non-rural it is. And, you know, this is this is an important question. I'm not saying you shouldn't ask it. It, it is interesting why such a person with that background has such widespread appeal. Dan and I, I think, have a two-part response. One is to think about Trump historically, right? Is he doing did he, so he does extraordinarily well. He does better in rural areas than any other Republican candidate. But he does benefit from a long decades transition in rural America towards the Republican. That is, he does sort of fit a trend line, and he does about as good in 2016 as you might expect if you follow that long trend line of partisan realignment in rural communities. So 
That's not to deny that there's something special about Trump, but it is to put him in appropriate context. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think, you know, we spent the better part of our time together talking about distrust and a, a long history of reactions towards towards government, a feeling of abandonment. You know, if Donald Donald Trump is not rural, and Donald Trump does not pretend to be rural. Right. He does not pretend to be anything he is not. And, you know, I think rural Americans in 2016, with all those attitudes, with all that baggage, with all those feelings of frustrations and resentment, um, were more willing to throw their support behind the guy that at least was appearing authentic to them than the candidate that was trying to appeal to uh, a stereotyped version of them. That's so true. I mean, that's that's my experience. I've seen it a million times on the campaign trail in Illinois. Somebody from Chicagoland goes downstate and, you know, then it's the it's the Carhartt jacket and the cowboy boots and the corncob pipe or the overalls. I mean, it's just so painful. Um, and yet it still happens. It's really interesting. Uh, uh, Nicholas Jacobs and Daniel Shea, they're professors of government at Colby College, the book. The Rural Voter, The Politics of Place, and the Disuniting of America. Professors Jacobs and Shea, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And do, do us a favor. Send us some of that 75-degree weather, would you? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. going to change tomorrow. Wind chill of 5 degrees, so we'll enjoy today while we can. Thank well, you, you can keep that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, too, so very much. And they both joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. Insert Democrat Socialist here. Runs the Democratic House law for 30 plus years running. He's promising this and he's stealing that. Where can you get that kind of money? He's using your house like his own piggy bank, gang, 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 gang. You ought to know by now. You can pay off your house here in Illinois, but you can never keep up with the taxes. Oh, how it's always been the plan to have a taxpayer pay, no doubt. Not a matter of if anymore, but when you're moving out. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. That theme music means it's time for a weekly conversation with Ted Dabrowski, president of WirePoints, wirepoints.org, all things Illinois policy related. Before we get to Ted, um, are you like me and you want to hear more from Dalton Mayor Tiffany Henyard? Oh, she's she is the gift that keeps on giving. And she is so oblivious to what is going on there, or less maybe she's trying to fool people. But, yeah, anything you got, Dan, what is she doing now? Is she... Uh, Doing singing grams or what? No, she's uh, launched a new podcast, oh, and she... you can, you can, uh, you know, ask her questions that may form the uh, topics that she'll cover in her <laughs> podcast. Super Mayor Tiffany A. Henry, the People's Mayor. So I heard you guys were looking for me. If you're looking for Tiffany Henry, press the subscribe button. Yes, you press the subscribe button. So, what do you want me to talk about? This or that? This and that? Or me? Tiffany A. Henry, you pick. Put your questions in the comments, and I'm going to answer all questions. Just be respectful. If you disrespectful, I'm not going to answer it. Because remember, I got the tea with the receipts. Matter of fact, if you want the tea, get it from me. 
Go tell it. If you want the tea, you get it from me. I assume she means truth. I don't know. Um, or Tiffany. You get the tea. You want the tea. You get it from me. I, it's very rhythmic. Um, you know, it's it's oh. funny. I've sort of missed, uh, you know, since the Shaw brothers have uh, gone away and Dorothy Tillman, I've sort of missed uh, more uh, colorful uh, William Beavers, more colorful uh, politicians in Illinois. And uh, Tiffany Henyard is... Um, is uh, is is uh, satiating that appetite I have now. I will say one thing about uh, this uh, Tiffany Henyard and the uh, the village of Dalton. Yeah, uh, which is that now because of her flamboyance, this is she has become a national figure of sorts. Getting right. certainly getting national coverage. Her flamboyance and her very liberal use of other people's money uh, to uh, enhance her lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Got to get her nails done, Dan. I mean, to to the credit of the village board, I mean, I, I don't want you to get, to get the idea that or to give the impression that Tiffany Henyard is sort of representative, despite her um, self-described uh, position as the people's mayor. She was elected in 21. She was recalled a year later. So by within a year a majority of the Dalton Village Board had revolted because of Tiffany Henyard's revolting conduct. And they actually put a ballot uh, question uh, out for the residents of Dalton to vote, and they voted her out. Then why isn't, wasn't she out? Because she challenged the constitutionality of the recall question, and she won at the appellate court level. There was the Illinois appellate court coming to the rescue of the political class once again. What else is new? The, um, the argument was that the creation of the mechanism for recall and the actual question to recall couldn't have been on the same ballot, shouldn't have been on the same ballot. They were, and thus she skated on the recall. So, you know, the residents of Dalton, and it seems to be a majority of the village board of Dalton, uh, has the download on Tiffany Henyard. So maybe there will be some sense next election uh, that is delivered, uh, you know, on behalf of those people that Tiffany Henyard says she represents. So it's just it's just interesting. Right. It's just well, interesting because if these communities like Dalton don't have enough problems and then they become laughing stocks because of uh, politicians like Henyard. And to, you know, to interfere with the election. Um, she said the next mayor is only going to make $25,000 a year as opposed to what she makes. And the question I'd ask for her on her podcast is, do you know the FBI is investigating you? Oh, the FBI, please. Yeah. The, 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 the FBI has investigated so many, quote-unquote, quote unquote, investigated so many municipal officials. How, how long did they uh, investigate Eric Kellogg when he was mayor of Harvey to no particular end? The, the I mean, you know, I think we have a more robust understanding of the FBI than maybe we did a generation ago. I certainly do. And I have zero faith, just about zero faith in the FBI when it comes to political corruption, uh, much of anything else, too. I mean, it's a joke. It only took them three decades to get Mike Madigan. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just it's a joke. And oh, yeah, the prosecutions of governors and so on and so forth. I mean, you know. I wouldn't I wouldn't telescope that too far into the future. And this is already too far into the future. Yeah, I just I don't buy it for a second. By the way, there's been a lot of U.S. attorneys 
in a bygone era too that were uh, that well that turned a blind eye to the political corruption that had been ongoing. Say, for example, with Madigan and Burke. So, I mean, yeah, the FBI is investigating. I wouldn't be too afraid. Uh, although they do like low hanging fruit where they don't have to think too much and work too hard. Exactly. And so if you know, this is why they usually pick off the alderman who takes five hundred dollars in cash in an envelope and they, you know, turn a blind eye to the kingpins because, well, that's too complicated and involved. Uh, for more on this and other matters, please be joined by Ted Dabrowski, president of Wirepoints, wirepoints.org. Ted, thanks as always for being with us. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. And, I, you know, it's going to be really hard to get her out of the way. I, I see one of her billboards or at least posters. It says, I am and forever will be Dalton's yep. mayor. I see that every Saturday <laughs> driving for the Southland. There's right there. Forever will be. Well, I will and be. I, and then she's pointing at you and it's all the sparkle and bedazzle. And, you know, yeah, that's it. Like I like sparkle. Like, sounds, like, sounds a little bit like Putin. Yeah, although yeah. I don't even think he's that aggressive uh, well, he did, to, to, you know, to put on billboards, I will be your president forever. Uh, especially in his first term, um, it's very, very aggressive. But I like that. I like that. Mm. I like that confidence. And you know, no, but I mean, th- there is this, this, uh, and it's very frustrating because I, I, nobody, I don't think very many people know the story about the recall because, of course, why would the Chicago press corps give any context to this? Why would it, any due diligence be done? But it does speak to this real tension I have, and I, I suspect you do too. You know, there are good people in Dalton. There are responsible elected officials on that board. There are sensible people there. And you could say the same thing about a lot of the other South suburban communities that are disasters. Um, And yet you just they just can't we just can't seem to they we just can't seem to get ourselves clear to, uh, you know, uh, aligned leadership that is of that sensible variety that can actually advance policies that try to uh, improve the the future for those communities yeah well what's interesting is is you know you, you mentioned uh, kellogg and harvey you hear the stories over and over of, of communities who somehow you know self-inflict themselves by by putting in these people uh you know the, the funny part is dan that we're talking about dalton and harvey but it's the same thing for things like uh like illinois as well right where oh yeah we do the same thing for ourselves so it, it, it's it's pretty much an illinois thing uh, deep, deeply throughout the state. Um, Jelly Belly's budget. Uh, I don't. Uh, I was off for a couple of days. I don't know if you've had it, but we, but uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about it last week because he didn't give a state of the state address in that time. So um, hey, um, so we're going to uh, uh, whack those who like to gamble on sports and uh, eight hundred million dollars in tax increases on corporations. I love that yeah. reporting because that doesn't get passed on to consumers. Um, that's how we're going to fill this uh, budget deficit we have because we've got to make sure we take care of the people most important to the Illinois political ruling class, and those are the people in this country and in this state illegally. Yeah, so, so Dan, you know, this is, you know, you and I and Amy have covered these budgets for a long, long time in Illinois. It's pretty much always the same story. There's a bunch of embedded tax hikes, a bunch of uh, spending to, to uh, special interest groups. And it's never balanced and all that. And, you know, and I, I think I got frustrated this time around. I just said, look, I'm not going to get into the details of, of, of the budget because it's the same old discussion. And you, you just nailed it by, by covering a couple things. I think probably the best way to look at this budget in Pritzker's budget uh, is, is to look at kitchen table issues and how they've been since he took over in 2019. Uh, you know, much like the whole Reagan question, are you better off today than you were four years ago? And uh, I think that's the best way to look at these budgets. And und- undeniably, um, 
people are far worse off. I mean, Pritzker's budgets and Pritzker's policies have made a mess. And so, you know, you look at, at, at kitchen table issues like jobs. We have fewer people employed today than when he took over. We have property taxes that are far higher today than when he took over. And he even promised in 2020 in his budget speech that he would do something about them. Gas prices, he doubled the taxes. Uh, we have the second, you know, whatever, we have the second highest gas taxes and some of the highest ta- uh, gas prices in the country. Inflation, he was a champion of all the bailouts. He was the biggest champion for for, for governors of all the all the COVID bailouts. He deserves a lot of the blame for the inflation in this country and, and certainly that Illinois have, have suffered. And uh, and things like education, we put in billions more since, since uh, Browner's uh, – evidence-based funding, and, and Pritzker's added much, much more, and yet our kids aren't, aren't learning. So all these kitchen table issues are, are just failures, and, and, and Pritzker owns that. And you know, instead, he's got his talking budget lines, and that's, that's kind of why I refuse to well, – I mean, I don't refuse, but it's just not worth talking about these individual things because it's just another failed budget, just like, just like we talked about Dalton and Harvey. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just another failed uh, you know, leadership uh, in Illinois. So last Friday, a circuit court judge ruled that the question on the ballot of the Bring Chicago Home referendum was unconstitutional. And the woman in charge of it, she said that this, the reason why a judge ruled this way, because of MAGA people. MAGA. When far-right special interests cannot win with the people, they take it to the court. They take away our health care. They take away our housing. They take away our right to vote. And that's exactly what happens. And she's blamed MAGA earlier. That wasn't in the soundbite, but yeah. So, uh, where yeah, where does this go from here? Well, you know, so so you know, Judge Kathleen Burke, she's a Democrat, and uh, I don't know much about her, but uh, she's she's certainly a Democrat. And uh, the fact that they would they would imply MAGA is is, is pretty crazy here. Uh, I guess it kind of goes with the Jesse Smollett stuff. Yeah, but, MAGA uh, territory. Mm-hmm. Look, That's right. Yeah, uh, you know, this is. Uh, you know, it, it's the first good ruling we've had in a long time. It sticks, but you know, this is this is a situation where, and it's it's much like the progressive tax, where you know they they buy off, you know, ninety five percent of the voters with with a benefit, so you can stick it to the other five percent, and and that's that's a, a crazy thing to put on a on a ballot. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, that that same argument or same same, um, you know, uh, rejection should have happened to the progressive tax. As it did here, because uh, all you know, all you're doing in these in these ballot initiatives is is paying off people to vote for something uh, that hurts a small group of people. That's wrong. I uh, tell you, um, school choice is expanding in Iowa. You got the hard cap on property taxes in Indiana, another uh, midwestern state uh, comparable to ours. It's uh, uh, floating a proposal to eliminate their state income tax because of the windfall in tax revenue they've generated from the profits that have been generated from the natural gas exploration and extraction, Marcellus and the Utica Shale uh, uh, deposits in Ohio. So now Republicans in Ohio have a plan to phase out uh, a state income tax that's still a percentage point lower than ours at the top level. Theirs is only 3.99, but they want to phase it out to zero by 2030. How about that? Well, you know, it's 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 a popular thing to do. We wrote about this, I guess, a couple of months ago, where states across the country, you know, the the whole thing of the progressive tax proposal here in Illinois was 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 the big outlier in the country, uh, because everybody's been moving to flat taxes. I shouldn't say everybody. Lots of states have been moving to flat taxes, and uh, and a lot of them want to eliminate the income tax. They've seen how 
how successful it's been for Florida and Tennessee and, and Texas and, uh, and other states. So um, to see Ohio think about it is great. You know, Iowa's been talking about it. So we're soon going to be surrounded by states that have far lower taxes than us and, uh, and some that have zero income taxes. And they and they have and as we like to say, they have schools and they have police departments and fire departments and state government with state employees and all all that fun stuff. And they can still somehow manage to do that without uh, taxing work. It's remarkable. Or or liquidating your home in the case of Indiana. Right. You know, it, it, that's the the big thing that people forget or get confused about is that you know, we can tax other we can tax like. You know, uh, uh, consumption and all that, but the last thing we should be taxing uh, either heavily or at all is is labor. We want people to work, and uh, you know, we want to incentivize people to to work hard and keep their money. So that's the the last thing we should be taxing. Ted Dabrowski, President of Wirepoints, Wirepoints.org, all things Illinois policy related. Ted, thanks as always. Thank you, guys. Thank you, and he joined us on our Turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, this comes to us from our friends in the Great White North, Strange Brewland, Canada. A trans-identified male, it's a man pretending to be a woman in this case. Such a gross story. Claims to be HIV positive. He inserts progesterone rectally, of course. What, uh, what other way would you do it, Dan, really? That's my preference. Uh, and um, he is breastfeeding. Yeah. His or chest feeding, I'm not sure what's the proper term, his child with the support of established medical clinics in Canada. Uh, former men's rights activist Murray Pearson is 52 years old. You may know him uh, more recently as Margaret or Margie Fancy Pants, which is his um, alter ego. He uh, shared an image of himself at a lactation clinic holding a nine-month-old. So he posted... Uh, from the clinic, uh, did Margie Fancy Pants, the 52-year-old. Hey, sisters, cheers. It turns out that one indisputable benefit of being trans femme is that you can be pregnant and get drunk with no undue problems. Malt is spectacular for lactation, so for trans femme moms, a beer is actually beneficial. I have a baby almost nine months old. This baby is staggeringly meaningful because their presence in my life is astoundingly unlikely. Yet there they are, and they are perfect, and I cannot wait to connect through feeding. And yes, I will stop drinking before it negatively affects anything they drink. Um, I'd be more concerned that the HIV positive, uh, that the virus, deadly virus, can be transmitted through breast milk. I'd be a little bit more concerned that a 52-year-old... Uh, named Mar- Margie Fancy Pants somehow got access to a nine-month-old child. Yeah, I'm disturbed about that, too. And shame on that breastfeeding clinic for even indulging him. Uh, Margie Fancy Pants, this is a wish I've had for decades. My egg <clears throat> cracked a year ago on December 12th. I realized I can nurse my baby already on the way. That lit a fire under me. 
and have gone from having lean pectoral muscle in March to full B cups now and growing fast. Mm-hmm. So this is a a man, woman turned man turned. What's going? No, on? it's a it's, it's a, a dude, dude named Murray Pearson, who now pretends to be Margie Fancy Pants well, because the, he's an adult. Yeah, but he didn't have he didn't give birth. Okay, so he just no. But, but, he, but taking, he was breastfeeding him. Yeah. He's taking the progesterone re- uh, rectally, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, So, yeah, you know, these are the sort of complicated uh, issues that uh, are taken up by our wonderful gender studies programs at the collegiate level. It's so helpful because they can explain this to us, how it's all very normal and that to support Margie Fancy Pants is the right and proper thing to do in an inclusive society. Also, let me introduce you to Dorian Electra. Dorian Electra is a non-binary singer, and she's taken it uh, one step further than the all-gender uh, identity right. bathrooms. What's more well, to do? Well, well let, me t- let me show you, or tell you, or let you hear it. You guys spoke, and I listened. I'm making all the bathrooms at my concerts not only gender-neutral, but species-neutral. I will be providing litter boxes in the bathrooms for all animal-identifying concert-goers on my tour. Now that's inclusivity in action. Kitty and litters? That, yeah, yeah, litter boxes. And um, and then there's video of of her putting litter boxes in all these bathrooms at this concert venue. By the way, not satire. No. I, I know, I, I I know we have to say that a lot. Too. Yeah, uh, Margie Fancy Pants, Dorian Electra, not satire. They probably have uh, advanced degrees from one of the seven sisters, as far as I know. For uh, more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Mark Bauerlein. He's a professor of English emeritus at Emory University, senior editor of First Things, author of The Dumbest Generation and The Dumbest Generation Grows Up. And uh, he joins us now. Professor Bauerlein, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Dan and Amy, good morning. And call me Mark. Uh, All right, Mark. Thank you for joining us. Um, you know, so you had experience at Emory University, and now you're on the board of trustees at New College in Florida, where there's been a little bit of an attitude change, thanks to uh, Ron DeSantis's leadership on things like identitarian politics masquerading as academic rigor. So, I mean, you know, these, uh, you know, I like to say outlier examples, but I don't think they're outlier examples anymore, and they're celebrated by the deep thinkers on college campuses. So uh, how did it go in New College of Florida when you guys chose to uh, take the gender studies department offline? And what does that tell us uh, in terms of potentially a case study of how to do it in other places, if that's feasible? Well, we, we terminated the area of concentration gender studies, sort of, sort of uh, the, the major. And, you know, my, my thing is gender studies – uh, developed gender theory was founded really as a kind of activist program. Uh, it was out to, I mean, that's, you know, we see the things in the public square. Now, these things were hitting, Dan and Amy, I saw this in 1990 in academia, the creation of these studies programs, and then the filtering of queer theory and all the, you know, the marginal, the abnormal, the dissident. Their favorite words were transgression, subversion. They love the idea of undoing sort of common sense, normalcy, 
they were, they were doing in the departments 35 years ago. And now we see the fruits of that. And my, my thing is activism is not a place to, 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 to operate on college campuses. This is a place for study and learning. It's a place to build knowledge. It's not a place to act out your sexuality. You know, a lot of these people, they're damaged human beings. I mean, who knows what you happened think? to some of these kids when they were, you know, when they were six years old. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we have sympathy for that. But this is not the place to act it out. And you're concocting theories. And what, what's interesting is uh, in, in the cases that you just read, taking photographs of yourself doing it, it's not enough for them just to act out. They have to display it to the world. It's, it's histrionic personality disorder it's narcissistic personality disorder going on here we all have to know and we all have to affirm i mean we, we don't ask people i don't want i don't want someone to affirm my sexuality but but boy do we feel the pressure now or what well i mean so at, at new college i mean i i assume uh, this the, the gender studies uh, concentration had been part of the academic offerings and so there had to be support for it so, I mean, even if there's a, a new board installed by a governor that wants uh, something more rigorous in terms of college, uh, state college offerings, how did you get it done? Uh, why didn't we hear about a, a revolt among the faculty and protests and so on and so forth? Well, here's what I would say about the, these, these cases. Uh, you, you take a stand and you get a temper tantrum going on for a couple of days. And you just say, well, okay, go ahead, you know, scream and, and, and protest and march. And, you know, the police had to form, uh, you know, cordons. They had to lock elbows in order to, to get us out of these meetings a few times. I mean, mm -hmm. the mob, <laughs> there were 500 of them out there yelling and shrieking and spitting. I can't say everything that went, uh, came out of their mouths on the air. But, look, when Donald Trump took gender out of Title IX, one month into his term, what happened? Nothing. I mean, you you had you had you know a couple of days of tantrum, and then it was over. Now Biden put it right back in, you know, on the in the first week of his presidency. But the point is, if we stand up, if we don't allow their guilt trips and the hysteria to to get to us. I think just a firm position on what is normal and abnormal, on what is uh, constructive versus destructive, uh, then we win. The problem isn't whether we're right or not. The problem is whether our leaders have any spine or not. And Ron DeSantis does. And, 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 the, and the trustees at New College, we're, 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 we're pretty solid on the changes that we've, that we've made. We've, we've, been, we've been pretty consistent, unintimidated. Uh, and what uh, has that generated outside of the, uh, you know, the, the, the bubble of faculty and, uh, and, and some student groups? What, what's been sort of the uh, New College ecosystem's response, you know, alumni and donors and prospective students? Well, we— we had about 30-plus professors leave in one way or another, take early retirement or, or take jobs elsewhere. 
but we're hiring others. We, you know, the, the news stories were there's a brain drain going on in Florida. Right, right. I get, I get emails every week from professors interested in coming to new college. There are a lot of people out there. We got the biggest entering class of freshmen last fall in, in, in new college history. We're going to get an even bigger one this coming fall. I mean, the place only had 680 students in, in a state with 22 million people. You can only get that many. I mean, this was this was not a thriving institution when we when we came in. And I mean, the grounds look better. The buildings are being renovated. I mean, there were elevators that didn't work. There was mold in, in the dorms. A lot of material improvements are happening on the campus. We've got sports teams now. That's a big part of our group. And sure. some athletics, male and female teams, that, that kind of changes the climate on, on the campus. And the athletes are great people, uh, uh, wonderful guys and gals. Well, also, too, I mean, do you, do you sense this as a bit of a flight to quality because there are so few uh, institutions that are not beholden to the identitarian left that, uh, you know, this becomes uh, like a— uh, like a Hillsdale, a Grove City, a handful of others. This is a place yeah. uh, that if uh, you're not going to one of those other schools, maybe for regional reasons or other reasons, athletic reasons, that this is a safe haven, so to speak. Well, the, look, look, woke identity politics, these are anti-intellectual positions. They do not allow open debate. They suppress dissent. They often operate not on evidence and fact and logic they operate on indignation right outrage as if that counts as a, as a position in in the public square so i think that that one of the things about identity politics i mean you know ibrahim kendi this major celebrity he does not come off as a very smart individual uh but he says you know that he says the things that are going to please the the hard left the identity politician so uh, this is the problem. I mean, John Stuart Mill, 150 years ago, put it this way: You got to have a little controversy in the room. You got to have a few people who don't agree with you in order to keep you fresh, so you don't get smug and complacent and lazy. I mean, one thing about killing gender studies at New College: the faculty issued a letter opposing what we were doing. Every single faculty member was behind it. And I want to say, wait a minute, everyone? You know, that sounds Orwellian, right? That sounds like that sounds like a, an, an election in the Soviet Union here. Come on. I mean, you guys, nobody here raises questions about, about these things. That shows anti-intellectual pressure. Well, for sure. And but 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 then the interesting thing, too, is you had 30 professors leave, but obviously many more stayed. So it's this is like I have to check the, the mentality is I have to check this box, but it really doesn't mean anything to me. And I probably agree with those uh, people who are uh, sidelining this area of 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 concentration. Um, yeah, but, yeah. but so, well, so, so I'm going to move on because, you know, I, okay. I, I did what I was, I did what I had to do in the moment, but I mean, it right. still, it still speaks to a, a certain, um, cowardice that is problematic, but it, but it does, t- you know, but, but it's, it's sort of like, you know, what I always say about the, the Illinois general assembly, the, uh, bad news is they're all cowards. The good news is they're all cowards. So it doesn't take <laughs> much leadership to move them in a different direction. Right. 
Right. I mean, I, I think that on the faculty in America, I think what you got most, I mean, almost all of them are liberals. Uh, and most of them are moderate liberals. You got a small group of the hard activists. The problem is that giant middle is scared yeah. of the activists. They're scared yeah. of the idea. They don't want to be called racist. They know that the activists, even though even though the moderate liberal has never voted Republican in his life, he knows that if he agrees 19 times but disagrees on the 20th time, they'll come after him. Mm-hmm. They are ruthless. They are punitive. Woke is a vengeful position. Okay? Uh, Just try so- telling a joke. They don't laugh. Yeah. So, so then um, what you're saying is no litter boxes in the bathrooms at New College? Is that what I'm hearing? I don't know if we want to go that far, Dan. <laughs> Mark, ba- Mark Bauerlein, professor emeritus of English at Emory, senior editor of First Things, author of The Dumbest Generation and The Dumbest Generation Grows Up. Mark, thank you as always. Appreciate it. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I guess there's a couple questions today that uh, relate to the Michigan primary. Um, One is uh, how much of a protest vote they will be against uh, Joe Biden at the behest of Rashida Tlaib because of Biden's lethargy in their minds in pushing for a pro-Hamas ceasefire in Gaza. That's one issue. Do you want to hear from one Palestinian Detroiter who's like, nope, I will never, ever vote for Biden ever again. How disappointed are you with the Biden administration? I'm heartbroken. I am so hurt that it's a feeling of betrayal. She voted for Mr. Biden in 2020, but now... There is a widespread underground campaign of Arabs, of Muslims, where we cannot morally support President Biden. So if not President Biden, would you vote for former President Trump? No. So who would you vote for? I would write in on the ballot, ceasefire, free Palestine even though that could potentially give the election to former President Trump. If things don't change, then I have no choice. I don't think uh, ceasefire is going to be our next president, but, um, you know, I get the protest vote. I mean, that happens in a lot of constituents on a lot of different issues, sure. You feel a, a betrayal. I mean, think about the people who wouldn't vote for George Herbert Walker Bush in 92 because he broke his no new taxes pledge, for example. It happens. I don't know how much it'll show up today, but I mean, it could be important come November in a state that, don't forget, Trump won in 2016 narrowly, uh, lost by a few points in 2020. But um, right now, according to the RCP, RealClearPolitics.com average, he's up a few points. He's up outside the margin of error in Michigan. So, um, you know, if that uh, attitude persists in a close election, and Trump were able to put Michigan back in play. Well, that certainly expands the map to Trump's benefit, doesn't it? Something else uh, before we get to our our next guest, I wanted to uh, raise as potentially more reflective of the 
discontent of the electorate mm-hmm. uh, in metropolitan areas, Detroit being one of them. And that's that's consistent across virtually every metropolitan area in America these days. The story of Fredrickson's Hardware in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. Fredericks Hardware. So we've you've seen the plexiglass and everything being locked up at uh, convenience stores to prevent the endemic retail theft in big city America. Uh, Hen- uh, Fredericks Hardware in San Francisco is taking it a step further. For a few hours every day, this is what you'll find entering Fredrickson's Hardware and Paint in Cow Hollow. The table alerts customers to wait for assistance at the door, a move that's being attributed to, quote, rampant shoplifting. It's pretty bad. I mean, the uh, dollar amounts are pretty significant, and with the tools, and now we're getting snatch and grabs where they come in and take hold displays. So it's getting kind of dangerous for the employees and the customers. Store manager Sam Black says for two hours in the morning and two hours in the evening, an employee will work with an individual customer. The table serves as a way to keep potential thieves from moving freely in and out of the store. We just want to make it uncomfortable for the thieves so they go somewhere else. Black says over his 24 years of working at Fredrickson's, the theft is the worst it has ever been. Staff has had to drill down pots and pans to keep shoplifters from swiping them. They've also had to put in locking systems to keep people from pocketing tools and other household hardware. One customer telling Cron 4 off camera that the situation is just sad. Yeah, people aren't happy. The regulars just, um, they can't believe it. Like, we can't believe it, but, you know, they've been really understanding. Black says he and his staff had to try something because they had not much success getting help from city leaders or the police. At this point, the one-on-one shopping experiment has been going on for three weeks. Black says they'll review the results after a month. Just had to do something. Uh, Next up, it's going to be you enter the store and you're facing down the barrel of a shotgun. Uh, How can I help you? Uh, I mean, this is... This is the lunacy of it uh, when you just um, give in to lawlessness in every conceivable way. And I think that's a story that will persist through November. And it certainly, I I suspect, will be impactful in the Detroit metro area. But let's get an expert opinion on that. Nolan Finley is the conservative editorial page editor of the Detroit News. He joins us now. Nolan, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you all. I appreciate being with you. Um, what about uh, that uh, story of the hardware store out of San Francisco and how much that rings true, how much that's part of the conversation in suburban Detroit, say? Well, in Detroit, excuse me, in Detroit, we're fortunate, I guess, in a, in a strange way. We don't have a whole lot of retail downtown. <laughs> yeah, well. So, you know, we, we're still coming back. <laughs> excuse me. But uh, and, and you haven't seen it really here the way you have other places and i think we've done probably a much better job here of prosecuting crime and so uh, if you prosecute retail crime you get less shoplifting i think that's a, a a simple formula that people in other places seem to have forgotten well right but i mean sort of the combination of the general lawlessness that's been endorsed by the uh the left's power structure in this country, which certainly would include the uh, Eva Perón of East Lansing, as I like to call her. And um, uh, and 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 it's not just indigenous individuals, American citizens. It's also 
with mm-hmm. respect to suborning people that are, have come into this country illegally. And I just wonder how much that plays with sort of swing um, working class voters in, in Michigan as, it, as they think about uh, Biden versus Trump. I think um, uh, voters here, immigration is one of the top issues, even though we haven't uh, had a migrant surge here. Uh, for some reason, uh, Governor Abbott's not busing migrants up here and we probably could use a few to uh fill some of the jobs we have vacant but regardless i mean people are upset about what they've seen at the border people just walking across uh, the border as if the line doesn't exist and i think they're fed up with biden's lack of attention on this issue i mean the administration treats the border uh just as it treated inflation and just as it, it's it's treating uh, Biden's age and frailties, just trying to spin it away. You know, what you see, uh, don't believe your eyes. What you see isn't real. You're really doing better. We've got the border under control, no crisis, and the economy's booming. You know, they keep spinning uh, reality, and voters aren't buying it. I think voters are really tired of this. And, you know, that's why I, I wrote this morning is, you know, you've had 87% of the electorate in January saying, we don't want a Trump-Biden rematch. And here we're looking straight dead at a Trump-Biden rematch. And you know, this is a failure of the, of the partisan system in America where you know, they, the politics simply isn't working when they give uh, America this sorry choice again for the second election in a row. Well, how embarrassing is this going to be for Biden tonight? I mean, if people put in ceasefire or write in uncommitted, like Rashida Tlaib was begging people to do on on social media, your governor seems a little nervous. She's tweeted out, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris fight like hell for us. Let's do the same for them by voting like hell in the presidential primary today. Isn't she clever? She's great. What a mastermind you have being a governor. You know, um, it could be if he gets up around 20, 25, 30 percent of the vote. I don't really expect it to get that high because you know reaching voters with this sort of campaign takes a whole lot more uh resources than than this group has had uh what i worry is that the percentage will get high enough that it'll start to um, affect administration policy uh, towards israel i think you've already seen some wobbling on behalf of joe biden and the administration toward Israel, and I worry that it'll send the wrong message to the administration. I think as much as anything, this is about his overall performance, not simply his his uh, uh, approach to the Mideast conflict. And I believe if there were another viable challenger on that ballot, you wouldn't need this protest vote. I think they would be beating the time out of uh, Joe Biden. Uh, Trump was uh, rallying at the faithful in uh, Waterford Township last week. I wonder mm-hmm. if uh, it has the same feel it did in 2016. Can do you think in this environment, if it is uh, the Biden-Trump matchup that's anticipated, Trump can win Michigan again? You know, I was there uh, Saturday night, and yeah, there was that feel. A little different audience, though. I mean, a little, you know, a lot, lot of young people there, which you didn't see. In the past, uh, I think there were a lot of probably first-time Trump voters there. I don't know. I think it, it, Michigan's going to be a hard win 
for him. Uh, but and, and it's not really about Trump here. It's about Joe Biden and the discontent with his presidency. I think there will be a a huge anti-Biden uh, vote come come this fall or lack of a vote come this fall. And the question is whether people take take their their uh, frustration with Joe Biden out in a way that causes them to vote for Trump or they just simply don't vote on the presidential ticket or vote for a third party candidate. I think we're going to see unprecedented numbers of ticket splitters or ticket or presidential uh, abstentions this this fall and a record number of third party votes. I think if no labels gets its act together and gets a candidate on the ballot, you very well could see a third party candidate uh, win here or at least have a huge impact on the outcome. Nolan Finley, conservative editorial page editor of the Detroit News. Nolan, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks. Have a good day. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's morning answer on AM 560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Um, closing out the show with a little uh, update on cutting edge scientific uh, discoveries, oh. advancements. We're men and women of science on this program, don't you oh, know? No. What now? Can uh, I research- grow a pair or something? Researchers at Israel's uh, Bar Ilan University have grown laboratory testicles. Oh, I was kidding. They hope uh, could eventually ease male ferti- uh, infertility, which affects 10 to 15 percent of American men. The uh, tiny artificial organs produced from cells extracted from mouse testes are said to resemble the structure and function of natural mouse testicles. The researchers are aiming to develop human-like testicles from human stem cells to help treat developmental sex disorders and infertility. Um, can I ask a question, please? Sure. Mouse testicles, are they like, tiny little mouse testicles? Yes. Um, the, uh, this, these uh, mouse testicles were donated from the uh, Mikos, the men in chromosomes only, that live in Hinsdale. Oh! So, I mean, again, I appreciate uh, the leadership from... Those professional men in Hinsdale with the mouse testicles that were uh, willing to, you know, advance the flag for for science and for easing male infertility, of course, as well. So, um, so yeah, some some exciting news there. Okay, just well, thought I'd share. Thank you very much. I mm-hmm. will not be partaking in that. So, thank you very much. All right, thanks also to Justin Kosick, our technical producer, and Quinn McCarthy, our executive producer. We're back here bright and early. I think I'm going to go golfing today, Dan. Are you golfing out there in Florida? Because we have Florida-like weather here. I am. Until tomorrow. How's your game, by the way? Mm. Since you've gotten your subpar last week. I'm playing okay. Yeah. We'll see. Working on it. Well, we keep us up. Always a work in progress. Yeah. I'll be sure to keep you apprised. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer. On AM 560. The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. 
Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.